Salam alaikum, peace be unto you. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Best Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Riyad Musa. Now, this is supposed to be a wellness podcast with a sense of humor, but based on what's been happening in Palestine and Israel the past couple of weeks, there's very little to laugh at. Instead of wellness, there's just death. Instead of humor, there's horror, unspeakable horrors. I mean, the things that I've seen on video. It's actually heartbreaking. It's it's actually inconceivable and unfathomable that in this day and age, such acts of indiscriminate cruelty can be meted out to innocence. I can't I can't believe what I'm seeing. As the father of four, I'm perpetually emotional. You know, my kids look at me. Look at this bro. Why is he crying? <laughs> you know, I I. I can't believe what's going on. So I feel I need to say something here. You know, because people seem to not understand what's happening. But I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to take a solution-orientated approach. This podcast is about finding solutions to problems and finding some humor along the way. I don't know how much humor I'll find, but we want to find solutions and I'll do it like a doctor would. You know, I'm going to describe this whole situation as a multi-system disease or a multi-system organ failure. And I'm going to tackle it like a doctor would. I'm going to look at the presenting complaint. I'm going to take a history because you need to know the history of the presenting complaint. I'm going to do examinations, investigations, do a differential diagnosis. What could be going on here? Do further investigations and then offer a management plan. But you need to know in detail what the problems are before you can offer a treatment. Because if you don't know what's actually going on, you can't offer the correct solution. And I am biased, right? But as a doctor, I want to be fair here. I'm going to treat this whole situation like my patient, right? I'm going to be fair and truthful and honest. I took the Hippocratic Oath, not the hypocritical oath. And hopefully by the end of this, we'll all find solace in the fact that we know the direction we need to move in at least and the principles that we will use to get us there. So this is the Best Medicine Podcast. I've been doing a lot of reading, guys. I've been doing a lot of reading, lots of research, Lots of reading because I want to get this right. Everything that I'm talking about here is based on truth. Um, if anybody has alternative perspectives, please offer it because it's our intention here to find beneficial knowledge so we can move forward as one. Right. Bismillah rahman rahim which means in the name of God, the beneficent, the merciful. The presenting complaint, as I understand it, is that on October the 7th, Hamas militants bypassed Israel's billion-dollar protective fence and killed 1,400 people, both soldiers and civilians, and took over 200 captives, both soldiers and civilians. Israel then killed 1,700 of the Hamas militants, those militants that broke through the fence, and then started an offensive and launched an offensive on Gaza. And they vowed to eradicate Hamas from the planet. 
By the time of filming this podcast, about 7,000 Palestinians have been killed, 40% of whom are children, a number that Biden disputes apparently. Now we're moving on to the history of the presenting complaint. The history is very important as doctors. You have to understand the context. How did we actually get here? Right, now where do we start? Um, I think let's start here. It's undeniable that for centuries, actually for millennia, in fact, that Jewish people were treated like crap. Persecuted to the nth, bruh. But here's the thing. Uh, in the Muslim countries, in the Muslim empires rather, under Muslim rule, they were treated well. Now, I know this sounds like biased coming from a Muslim guy. I do trust the evil Muslim. Um, but this is freely available information in the history books. You don't have to go down some Joe Rogan rabbit hole to find this information. Um, they were treated well comparatively to a lot of the empires over the millennia. They were treated well. They were given a status uh, of dhimmi, uh, which was protected under Islamic rule. They were actually relieved of persecution. For example, like in the first Muslim conquest of Jerusalem, uh, this was 637 AD, Muslims under the leadership of the Khalif Umar ibn al-Hattab, peace be unto him, defeat the Christian Byzantine Empire, ended 500 years of Jewish oppression, overturned the ban on Jews living and worshipping in Jerusalem, cleaned the Temple Mount, which I think was desecrated and disrespected over that time, and invited 70 Jewish families to settle on its southern end. And this marks the start of Jewish presence in Jerusalem for the first time in 500 years. In the second Muslim conquest of Jerusalem, 1187 AD, once again, Jewish population zero because previous empires kicked them out. Muslims under the leadership of Salahuddin. This guy's a, this guy's a G, bro. Uh, you may know him from the movie uh, Kingdom of Heaven, I think, with Orlando Bloom. You offer terms, I ask none. I will give every soul safe conduct to Christian lands. Every soul. The women, the children, the old, and all your knights and soldiers, and your queen. Your king, such as he is, I leave to you and what God will make of him. No one will be harmed, I swear to God. The Christians butchered every Muslim within the walls when they took this city. I am not those men. I am Salahuddin. Salahuddin. Then under these terms, I surrender Jerusalem. Assalamu alaikum. Please be with you. Salahuddin defeated European Catholic Crusader states, and this ended 200 years of Jewish and Orthodox oppression, overturned the ban on Jews, Copts, and Orthodox Christians living and worshipping in the city, invited Jewish families from Ascalon to relocate to the city. Then, Muslim Iberia and Andalusia, which is the golden age of Jewish culture in Spain, 
711 to 1491 AD, where Jewish religious, cultural, and economic life flourished while the counterparts in Christian Europe faced pogroms and persecution. And this ended with the Reconquista and the expulsion of Jews and Muslims from Spain by Spanish monarchs. And then 1187 AD to 1917 AD, the Middle East actually served as a place of refuge for Jews driven out of Europe by massacres and persecution. Um, in fact, the Sultan Bayezid, for example, sent ships to save the Sephardic Jews from the Spanish Inquisition in 1492 and invited them to settle in the Ottoman Empire, where Jewish people relatively they actually did extremely well. They were given protected status and they were able to govern themselves. They were able to freely move, freely do business. Under the Ottoman Empire, you could actually travel from Cairo to Istanbul to Baghdad without a visa. It was just one big complicated community with its own problems, a lot of problems, but they were allowed to actually flourish. So, the Jewish people were treated like crap in Europe, right? And because of this, a movement emerged called Zionism, which was initially a fringe movement, but it gained a lot of traction with this brat called Theodore Herzl, who was an Australian Jew. Uh, actually, not Australian, uh, Austrian, Austrian Jew. He wasn't Australian. He wasn't like, oh, my, my name is Theodore Herzl and I'm a, I'm a Zionist, mate. Good on ya. No, no, he was an Austrian, he was an Austrian Jew, and uh, he wrote a book called The Judenstaat, or The Jewish State in 1896, and he wrote that the only way to avoid anti-Semitism in Europe is actually to have, he said the only way to avoid anti-Semitism in Europe is to have our own country. I don't know why I'm doing the Arnie accent. This is the only Austrian accent I know. It is the only way we will establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Yeah. But they didn't consult the Palestinians. They didn't need to know. Why did they need to know? But he didn't stop with this book. He uh, organized the first um, Zionist conference in uh, Basel, Switzerland in 1897. And this conference was so successful, people, that in his diary after the conference, he wrote it, At Basel, I founded the Jewish state. In five years, perhaps, and certainly in 50 years, everyone will perceive it. But he got it wrong. 50 years later, everyone didn't perceive it. But 51 years later, <laughs> Israel was established. After this conference, the whole movement of Zionism like accelerated a lot. They started raising funds uh, to promote uh, immigration, lobbying different governments, to support the cause, buying land in Palestine. And they lobbied the empires. Uh, the British responded. At that time, the British were making a lot of promises to many people. It was the end, or towards the end of the First World War. So on uh, November the 2nd, 1917, um, Lord Balfour was the Foreign Secretary of Britain, he actually wrote, His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities. In Palestine. 
He says nothing is going to be done to prejudice them. But they didn't even consult the Palestinians. Made all the arrangement with the Zionist lobbyists. Uh, didn't care to consult uh, the Palestinians. He actually wrote. He actually wrote to another bra in Palestine. This is Lord Balfour, the English people bra. It caused a lot of cuck, bra. In Palestine, we do not even propose to go the form of consulting the wishes of the present inhabitants of the country. What's the point there, barbarians? Ha! Yo, bra. Hectic. There was a writer, Arthur Kustler. He wrote, One nation solemnly promised to another nation the country of a third. But this is all cool, bro. This is the when colonialism was in vogue, bro. This is the arrangements that they were making, you know. And at that time, the British, you couldn't trust them with anything. Has anything changed? I don't know, maybe, right? They will politely uh, and eloquently lie to you. They even promised, the British even promised the, the area to the Arabs because they wanted to defeat the Ottomans, they were fighting the Ottomans, and then they told the Arabs, yo, fight with us against the Ottomans, and we will give you your independence. And they even made a movie about this whole thing called Lawrence of Arabia. And Lawrence of Arabia, if you look in his book, uh, The Seven Pillars, he actually expressed a lot of remorse about lying to the Arabs that they were going to give them independence. Right, he wrote in his book, Cabinet raised the Arabs to fight for us by definite promises of self-government afterwards. So I had to join the conspiracy and for what my word was worth assured the men of their reward. In our two years partnership under fire, they grew accustomed to believing me and to think my government, like myself, sincere. Instead of being proud of what we did together, I was continually and bitterly ashamed. It was evident from the beginning that if we won the war, these promises would be dead paper, and had I been an honest advisor of the Arabs, I would have advised them to go home and not to risk their lives. Bro, but they did risk their lives, and they died, and they didn't get their, Palestinians didn't get their independence. So then, after World War I, the League of Nations set up the mandate system. And the mandate system was basically set up to distribute the losers' territory. So they want to distribute the Ottoman and the German territories and put it under the tutelage of advanced nations. So Palestine was put under the tutelage of Britain. Because, you know, the Palestinians, they can't look after themselves. We have to look after them, tutor them how to run themselves until we will give them independence, uh, which we're not really going to do. Uh, we said we're going to do it, but we're not really. They don't know. We promised them. They fought for us, but we are not really going to. We're going to renege on that. because We're making these agreements with the Zionists uh, who are much wealthier. And uh, we feel it's the best, um, it's, it's the most just thing to do. It is very just to do this type of thing. Instead of keeping our promises to give the people independence, we will um, do something different, right? So Palestinians not consulted at all. So after the World War, uh, there were waves of Jewish immigration. They set up schools, factories, they had their own militia called the Haganah because 
uh, big idea behind Zionism was that the Jewish people become strong because they've been persecuted for centuries. They had great ambition to be strong, to have a great powerful army. They weren't going to let this persecution happen to them again. But then the Arabs like started to realize, yo, this... Yo, why are all, hello, shalom, why are you, why so many? Okay, I like, okay, brother, why so many? You told us you're going to give us independence, but you're not. We figured it out a bit late, but we figured it out. They started realizing that, you know, they're not going to get the independence. <laughs> you bastard, you lie, bastard, you give our land away to someone else. The guys lied to them, the Arabs realized this, in 1936 to 1939, there was uh, the Great Arab Revolt, and there was widespread violence throughout the country, in the Arabs, between the Haganah, between the British. In 1937, Winston Churchill actually said this about the Palestinians. He said, I do not agree that the dog in a manger has the final right to the manger even though he may have lain there for a very long time. I do not admit that right. I do not admit for one instance that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race has come in and taken their place. Bro, so this is publicly said, you know, it wasn't like these days where it's all covert and stuff. This is just normal, bro. This was always a colonial movement. Zionism was always a colonial movement um, because back in the day, in the West, I mean, colonization wasn't like, like it is now. You know, it was just something the Europeans did, bro. It was just something, it was the fad, you know. And even though Jewish people were persecuted in Europe, the European Jews still had a strong affinity with this idea of the superiority, right? And the connection with Europe as opposed to Asia. Um, Herzl, even in the Judenstadt, wrote... Uh, we should there form a portion of a rampart of Europe against Asia, an outpost of civilization against barbarism. We should, as a neutral state, remain in contact with all of Europe, which will have to guarantee our existence. Herzl thought, why can't we do that too, bra? Europe was still civilized, the East wasn't. The Jewish people still looked to Europe for approval. I know people try and deny the fact that Zionism is a colonial movement, but they called a lot of the Zionist instruments, uh, the land acquisition instruments, the Jewish Colonial Trust, the Colonization Commission. You know, there was lots of meetings with Herzl, with... Um, the British colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, and they tried to get the right to colonization, you know, and they made deals with, you know, the British. They were going to have a joint stock company which was subject to English jurisdiction, framed according to English laws, under the protection of England. He wrote uh, to Cecil John Rhodes, who was the top G of colonialism, the top G for advice on how to do this properly. So it was always a colonial project. Vladimir Jabotinsky, well-known 
Zionist. This guy wrote in the Iron Wall, it is utterly impossible to obtain the voluntary consent of the Palestinian Arabs for converting Palestine from an Arab country to a country with a Jewish majority. My readers have a general idea of the history of colonization in other countries. I suggest they consider all the precedents with which they are acquainted and see whether there is one solitary instance of any colonization being carried on with the consent of the local population. There is no such precedent. This is equally true of the Arabs. They feel at least the same instinctive, jealous love of Palestine as the old Aztecs felt for ancient Mexico and the Sioux for the rolling prairies. Every native population in the world resists colonists as long as it has the slightest hope of being able to rid itself of the danger of being colonized. That is what the Arabs of Palestine are doing. The iron law of every colonizing movement, a law which knows no exception, a law which existed in all times, under all circumstances, if you wish to colonize a land in which people are already living, you must provide a garrison on your behalf. Or else, give up colonization. For without an armed force which will render physically impossible any attempts to destroy or prevent this colonization, colonization is impossible. Not difficult, not dangerous, but impossible. Zionism is a colonizing adventure, and therefore it stands and falls by the question of an armed force. Over the next period, about 750,000 Palestinians became refugees in what is widely known as the Nakba, or the catastrophe, or the disaster. And Israel became 80% of what was Palestine. 80%. A year later, the United Nations passed a resolution, it was in 1950, that allowed for all Palestinian refugees to return home. But they have since, to this day, been denied the right of return. So the idea of Zionism was born out of persecution, but then it metamorphosed into a colonizing expedition. I was listening to this interview with Gabo Mate, with Russell Brand. And Gabo Mate, um, he barely survived the Holocaust. Many of his, um, his family members were killed in the Holocaust. And um, he says on this podcast, he says to Russell, when I was a teenager in Canada, uh, I was a Zionist. The, the, the dream of the Jewish people resurrected uh, in the, their historical homeland and the barbed wire of Auschwitz being replaced by the boundaries of a Jewish state with a powerful army. Uh, the idea I found it liberating to, to believe in that dream, in that point of view, and I really believed it. Uh, and then I found out it wasn't exactly like that. That I found out that in order to make this Jewish dream a, a reality, we had to, to visit a nightmare upon the local population. There was a Zionist slogan called uh, a land without a people for a people without a land. Um, but but there, was no, there was no land without the people. There were people already living there for, for hundreds of years or even longer. As a matter of fact, uh, you want to hear something really interesting? Uh, and David Ben-Gurion, who was the first prime minister of Israel, actually subscribed to this. Who are the Palestinians? 
because uh, the Jews in Roman times, uh, all of them never left, left Palestine. Many of them stayed there. And, and some of them, hundreds of years later, converted to Islam. So in some ways, they may be descendants of ancient Jews. There are cousins, to say the least, no matter how you look at it. There's no way you can create a Jewish state without oppressing and expelling the local population, which is what they did with British Empire protection. And Israeli historians have shown without a doubt that expulsion of the Palestinians was persistent, pervasive, and cruel and murderous. It was deliberate. It was called the Nakba in Arabic, which meant the catastrophe or the disaster. Now, in Canada, there's a law that you cannot deny the Holocaust, but in Israel, you're not allowed to mention Nakba, even though it is the very basis of the foundation of the state. So, once I became aware of all of this, uh, yeah, okay, we created this beautiful dream, but we imposed a nightmare on someone else. And then I visited the occupied territories. Russell, during the first Intifada, I, I cried every day for two weeks at what I saw brutality of the occupation, the petty harassment, the murderousness of it all. Cutting down of Palestinian olive groves, denial of water rights, the humiliation. And it's much worse now. So so that is the background and it could not have been any other way because you could not have created the exclusive Jewish state without oppressing or expelling the local population. It's the largest and longest ethnic cleansing operation in the 20th, 21st century. And who are these people in Gaza? It's a small area with multiple hundreds of thousands of people. Who are these people? They are the direct descendants, the direct kids and grandkids of people that were expelled from what we now call Israel. And here's the outrage. As a Jew, I could could land in Tel Aviv and demand citizenship under the law of right to return. But my Palestinian friend in Vancouver was born in Jerusalem. Can't even visit. Right. So that's what Gabo Mate said. Okay, so um, over the years, more and more of the Palestinian land has been occupied by Israel, either taken in war or through settler expansion. These hundreds of settlements, almost 700,000 settlers in the West Bank. Now, these are illegal settlements according to international law. It's a very, very weird situation. It's almost like in the West Bank, it's like one country on top of another. It's like a, almost like a racist tiramisu situation. Basically, you've got all these Israeli resorts or settlements, right, all over the West Bank. And they're connected by a network of roads, beautiful super highways that's only available to Israelis. Super fast highways, you can drive in between the settlements and Tel Aviv with no problem, right? Meanwhile, the Palestinians are trapped because of all the settlements in patchworks 
of land blocked by Israeli separation walls with limited freedom to travel and they have to go through all of these Israeli military checkpoints just to go to do things and go about their day. This really impacts very negatively on the economy. The closest potential to fixing this uh, was the Oslo Accords. I remember in the 1990s, uh, Bill Clinton met with uh, Yitzhak Rabin from Israel and Yasser Arafat from the PLO, from Palestine, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And they met on the White House lawn. They were standing there posing. I don't know what uh, Bill Clinton was telling them. Guys, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. But I'm very excited about this threesome we're about to have. I, I don't think he said that. But um, that looked to be... Uh, a potential for a two-state solution. Now, remember, this is supposedly Palestinian land, but has been occupied by Israel. And the Oslo Accords was supposed to be a roadmap to allow Palestine to, to have their own land. Now, on top of all of this, while they deciding and trying to figure out how to divide all of this, Israel is taking more and more and more territory. There's more and more and more settlements, right? That's like us, we're going to eat a pizza now. Now we're deciding how we're going to divide this pizza fairly. And while we're deciding how we're going to divide it, one of the parties is just chowing the pizza. It's like, what piece do you want? Hey, you can't have... We have to be fair here. Bruh. That seemed to be happening. So now they say the two-state solution can't even work because um, there's so many Israeli settlements. You know, there's over 700,000 uh, settlers at the moment in the West Bank and it's always increasing. So I think, guys, I think I'm ready to do my first Differential diagnosis session. It's diagnosis time, people. Imagine, this is how I actually used to look back in the day. You know? Distinguished. Before I threw my life away to become a comedian. It's diagnosis time. Now, remember, based on everything we've said so far, looking at this whole situation, if you recall, I'm looking at this whole situation, the Palestine-Israel situation, as a multi-systemic disease. I'm looking at it like my patient. And uh, so far, I've identified a few clear conditions that uh, require treatment. To recap, we discussed the presenting complaint initially. We took a detailed history, and now we are here at the first differential diagnosis session. Okay. The first condition I've noticed is called anti-Semitism-itis, which is a European condition. Now, anti-Semitism-itis didn't really exist much in the Muslim and Arab world. It's not like there weren't any outbreaks, tiny little outbreaks here and there, but it wasn't endemic to the area like it was in Europe, where it spread Hectically. As the name indicates, uh, this anti-Semitism refers to the Semitic peoples, which include the Arabs. This condition also had a variant over the years known as the Mal Gibson syndrome. And more recently, a variant has been identified in the United States called the West Kanye variant. Right. Now, the symptoms of anti-Semitism-itis has changed drastically over the years. Initially, it resulted in death and persecution of Jewish people. But usually these days, anti-Semitism-itis results in bipolar rappers losing Adidas sneaker deals. So, uh, you know, the symptoms have changed uh, a, a little bit over time. The second condition 
uh, I've identified is colonialitis, also known as dudes with stockings and wig syndrome. It's a very contagious condition spread throughout Europe. And the sufferers feel they have the compulsive feeling and need uh, to bring civilization to brown people by taking their land and enslaving them, right? It's a very, very, very contagious condition. And uh, a lot of the European uh, Zionists caught this condition. Right, the third condition, condition number three. This condition actually resulted from the merging of the two conditions we mentioned so far, the merging of colonialitis with anti-Semitism-itis. And that resulted in a new a syndrome called a Zionism syndrome, also known as a pay-hurt-forward disease. Um, it's based on the idea that one group of people hurt another group of people so much so that that second group of people who were hurt hurt a completely different group of people. Right. Now, there's a milder version of this disease that uh, emerged about a year ago. Uh, it's called Oscar Slapitis. Uh, I think you may have uh, been aware of this condition. Um, it really affected uh, Jada, Pinkett Smith, Will Smith, and Chris Rock. It's a milder version of pay hurt forward disease or Zionism syndrome, where Jada, for example, hurt Will a lot. If you know, you know. Jada hurt Will a lot. And I'm very sorry that Jada is Europe in this analogy, right? And then Will a.k.a. the Jewish people, took that hurt and that pain and took it out on Chris, a.k.a. Palestine, right? It's exactly like the situation we have here today, except, uh, okay, maybe it would be more accurate as if, like, Will slapped Chris and then um, uh, Chris's head came off. 25% of Chris, his head just remained on stage and then they dragged 75% of him, his body, off stage and separated it in the refugee camps throughout the world, right? And then his 25% head just sitting there going, can you believe this shit? I got to defend myself and I got no arms. I want to run away. I got no motherfucking legs. I know I said I want to get ahead in life. This is not what I meant. Right? So it's kind of like that situation if that happened. And then after Will slapped Chris's head off, um, Will gets given the Oscar. Israel gets celebrated by the world. That's called Oscar Slipitis or pay hurt forward disease or Zionism syndrome, which is a mixture of colonialitis and anti-Semitism-itis. Okay, so I think that's the end of part one. In the next section, I'm going to do more examinations, deeper investigations into this whole situation, find out more conditions that require treatment, and hopefully by that point, we'll have enough information to offer a comprehensive management plan or at least principles that will allow us to move forward and find a solution. Uh, I try to be very, very honest and truthful in this entire podcast. Please comment below. If you have any questions, please leave them below. 
um and uh, i try to use some figurative language and analogy to keep things a bit humorous but this in all truth is just a rafik situation i'm praying that by the time the second part of the podcast comes out we'll have a ceasefire i pray that uh, humanity prevails because at the moment the unspeakable cruelty going on uh, that we all seeing you know uh on social media it's just it's it's nauseating it's horrific i can't believe this is happening in 2023 and it needs to stop and uh what's worse also is that the powers the superpowers in this whole situation they're not even acknowledging the deaths and that is a level of evil that like i can't deal with not only are you obliterating uh these children but then you you refuse to even acknowledge that they existed which is just which is which is just which is just wrong um so um we need a ceasefire now um free palestine Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'll see you guys uh, very soon for part two. Inshallah.